We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Cooley's with me today. He's got film breakdowns of Kyle Trask and Jamie Newman, which we will get to. Um, But um, I'm really pleased that he's here with me today because, you know, you're a warrior here, man. You had knee surgery yesterday. Uh, You just went through rehab already. You do rehab right away the day after, huh? Yeah, they set up the physical therapy today and it was really not hard i think they just want to see you give you some exercises whatever you do i don't know how did how did like i'm i feel like i'm capable of rehabbing myself been doing this a lot oh god stop just do what they tell you to do no i no i hear you the nice thing about when you schedule the rehab is you make sure you go do it i know but you tend to be one that thinks that you can figure it out even more than the experts sometimes so just do what they tell you to do. Don't, you know, your big thing, and by the way, it's a big thing of, of the, your generation, um, which is, you know, I'm not just going to do it without you explaining why I have to do it. <laughs> that was something you told me a long time ago. I'll never forget that. <clears throat> and it is so true. And I actually, as just a youth basketball coach, I was much more of an authoritarian, but I'll never, I'll never forget you telling me that. I mean, it was probably seven, eight years ago, and you just said, I was one of those players, and a lot of the players today, they don't want, they'll do it, but they need to be told why they're doing it and explained as to why they're doing it. And you know what? It's not that much trouble for a coach to explain why they're doing it. Um. Do you it's remember? funny though because I was reading something, not the other, a, a while ago, and in part explaining some of that culture. And it's like when you were a little kid and you went to the grocery store and you wanted something, your mom and dad would have said, "You can't. We don't have any money. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no." And now there's no why. They're like there has to be a why even for the little kids. Like you hear parents explaining, like you have too many toys, or you've already had this, or so and so. You know, if you do X, Y, and Z, you can get it. And there's like all this explaining to little kids from parents of why. <laughs> like, just tell them because. I think that's different. I think there are instances where, you know, 
uh, because I said so is is actually appropriate. But I think, you know, um, more times than not, it's better for the kid to, to be explained as to why. Rather better than, or not, it's become what it is. And now when you're 12 years old and you're trying to tell them how you want to operate a pick and roll, and they're like, but why? I'm going <laughs> to... Let me, let me tell you that I'm going to tell you exactly. I remember this specifically. Um, I forget whether or not we were doing a show together or whether or not we had just had a conversation. And, um, but I remember specifically when I, and I thought about that and, you know, and I, and I was very much, you know, I wasn't like super authoritarian, just do it because I, I, I told you to do it. This is what you're going to do. And trust me on this. Um, it wasn't that I was that way all the time, but I'll never forget one of the first times after that. I, I do remember this conversation specifically with you because, you know, the other person that said something to me about you was Mike Shanahan. And he said, Cooley, all, it was very, it was very hard to keep him from getting bored because he got things so quickly and he always was curious uh, and always wanted to know why or ask questions. I forget how he said it, but specifically, you just said like a pick and roll. I'll tell you exactly what it was. We were like up six with 30 seconds to go in a game and had like five fouls to give. And I, there was a timeout by the other team and they had to come the full length of the court. And I told my kids, I said, look, I want the ball to come up to half court, and then I want you to go for a steal, but I want you to foul the guy. Not intentionally. I'm going to tell the ref that we're going to use some of our unused fouls. And they were looking at me like, why? We're up six, coach. And I said, yeah, we're going to try to, to take a bunch of the clock off. We're gonna, and I, I went through the whole explanation. We've got five. I think we had like two fouls called on us. I said, we got four fouls to give. And we're going to let four, five, six seconds off the clock, not let them take a shot. And by the time they finally are able to run an offensive possession, they're going to be down six and they're not going to have time for two possessions, potentially. And we did it. And I remember specifically explaining it. But here's the thing. After the game, I had to explain it again because most of them still didn't get it. But it worked. You know, it went from like 30 seconds to like 14 seconds before they finally inbounded the ball, got up a shot, and I think they missed it anyway, and we grabbed the rebound and ran the clock off. But I went, you know, I, I told him, I said, I'm going to tell the referee that we're not fouling intentionally, but we do want to give fouls. And, um, and they were young. Like, they were probably 12 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old or something. I also remember, I'll never forget, Coach Thompson I was telling a story to maybe you or maybe Tommy, I can't remember, about how I got teed up for using a timeout that I didn't have. I, I may have told you the story before. I'm not going to tell the long version. Basically, I was told that I had a timeout left by the scores table, and I called one, and I didn't have one. And um, I got hit with a T, and it ended up forcing overtime, and we ended up losing the game. It was a massive mistake. But the scores table, I looked at him because I didn't have my assistant coach there that day, and I said, how many timeouts do, do I have? You've got one, coach. All right, great. Timeout. Hit the timeout, and we're over there, and it's like a two-point game. I forget what this – I actually remember the situation, but I'm not going to get into the long, uh, detailed version. Anyway, 
Then I hear as my team's walking back out on the floor, a technical foul uh, on the bench here for using a timeout he didn't have. I, I was like, excuse me? I just asked you. Well, it's not our responsibility. It's your responsibility to keep track of your timeouts. We gave you inaccurate information, but that's it doesn't matter. Anyway, to make a long story short, the next day I told the story on the air, whether it was to you or, or Tommy, I forget. And Coach Thompson's waiting for me in the bullpen when, when I walked out in the bullpen. And he said, motherfucker, how many timeouts do you get in a six, in a seventh grade game? And I said, I think four. You use four motherfucking timeouts in a seventh grade game? Are you crazy, boy? And I just started laughing so hard. And he's just laughing as he walks into the studio. And, of course, then, you know, he tells the story with Doc and Brian, and they're all having a laugh at my expense. And he said, they're in seventh grade. Why would you need ever have a need to use all four of your timeouts? Don't you know your parents are right? They, they want this game to go quickly. I thought that was funny. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know how we got sidetracked on this. Oh, no, you wanted to win. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did want to win. Um, but I, I, I was going to ask you about your knee surgery. First of all, it went well. What specifically was the injury? Well, I tore my cartilage in my on the outside part of my left knee, the lateral compartment. Hmm. And I, I think I remember telling you about this like in October, and I was right. hoping it would get better because yeah. I don't deal, do that great without cartilage. And so I put it off and put it off, and it, it won't, it wouldn't bend. Uh, it, it, it's wild. Like I haven't even taken an ibuprofen. I t- I've taken like they gave me an anti-inflammatory, and it's pretty swollen right now. But I have. It feels better today than it did when I walked in there yesterday. Uh, the do- they're, they think I'm a dope, both doctors that I've been dealing with, because they think that I need a new knee. Like they called my, when I went in, I was talking to the surgeon who was not the doctor I was talking to. He said, we've talked extensively. And you, Quint, my doctor said, I don't know why we're doing this. The guy needs a new knee. But I told you, I want to make it four or five years. So I don't have to do potentially three knee replacements in my life. Yeah, and every year, those knee replacements get better and better and better. And it's up to like even 15, 20 years if you, you don't kill it with a knee replacement. But I'm like, I'm 38 years old. I don't quite want a new knee. Let's see if this works. The, the doctor called and talked to my wife. And I guess on an arthritis scale, it's like one, two, three, four being the most. And he told my wife, I'm a four plus uh-huh. arthritis. So it'll be a couple years before I get a new knee, hopefully. But they do think that this surgery will alleviate a lot of this. I mean, you've been in severe pain for several. They months. don't. They don't know. They don't. They don't know. Okay. But it's going to because I know better than them. Of course you do. Um, well, here's the thing: the arthritis that I've had has been there since 2014, 2015. I mean. It, it, it's not fun, but it's manageable. Like, I could go and play a game of football. I just can't jog or do crazy things like that. When I tore the lateral side, which I don't even know how I did, just ha- I, don't, I don't even remember. I know I didn't do anything impactful on it. Just one day hurt real bad. That sucks. I couldn't bend it. Like, I, if you think of 90 degrees, knee bend, I couldn't sit at 90 degrees for more than two minutes before it hurt. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm... So, yes, I know it's going to help. It's not going to fix anything. All right, I have um, two follow-up questions. Number one, you had this surgery in Wyoming, right? Yes. Are the doctors there good enough to do this kind of surgery on someone like you? They absolutely are. Okay. They are. Did you consider coming back to D.C. or going to, you know, um, Denver or somewhere else to have this in in a bigger city? Nope. Okay. With the knee replacement, and they, the doctors that do the knee replacements here, the guy that does it, everyone loves. He apparently has a phenomenal track record. I think I'd use the same guy for a knee replacement and just do it here. Okay. Secondly, but I would do a little bit more research on that. Secondly, I don't know that I've ever asked you this. What is the situation with retired NFL players right now and health insurance? Oh, that's a really good question. It's the first, you're covered for five years if you're a vested veteran. So that means you played four accredited seasons. I think you got to play four games a year to have accredited seasons. And then you get this allotment of money afterwards based on every year you played. And if you remember last year, that's the money that all the guys were stealing with the fake orders. Oh, yeah. Right. So I have somewhere around like when I had to start using my allotment, I had about $200,000 credited to my name and that covers your health insurance and your like for your family, which is, doesn't last forever. I mean, you think fifteen, sixteen thousand $16,000 a year for family health insurance or 12 for sure. Yeah. So you're going to use it up in 15 years. Okay. So you are so basically someone like me is covered for, 20-ish years from the time they retire Got before it. you start paying for your own out-of-pocket. Is it a good plan? Yeah, I have a good plan, yeah. You I can mean, pick your plan. It's it, I have, it's Cigna insurance. You, you pick sure. whatever you want. It's okay. just, you have an allotted amount of money that covers it. I, I thought it was ridiculous going back to the CBA when guys were arguing for less padded practices and an extended period in the spring to not go to OTAs versus lifetime health insurance. Like, come on. So you had um, a CBA vote where the players decided to lessen the number of OTA and minicamp days, you know, padded practices, and they gave they, they took that instead of lifetime health insurance. I Honestly, I don't know if lifetime health insurance was on the table when we voted for it, but I thought if we were going to argue for something, it would have been more guaranteed money in contracts and, and better extended health insurance. Because you, you look at this 20 years out, and clearly guys can end up paying for their own insurance, but that's when you start, well, a lot of the guys really start having problems. It'd be nice to be covered completely forever. That's like the rest of the sports. Were you ever the team's player rep? Mm-mm. I wasn't. Why not? James Thrash was. He was great. Wait, who was? I think it was James Thrash. When oh, James Thrash. Down. Okay. Well, James Thrash, it wasn't James Thrash for all of the years you were in Washington. No, but that CBA year. Okay. Uh, it was James or Kedrick Golston or something. I, I had no problem with our guys. It was just, you know, in general, the consensus was, some of these other things. And do you think the owners cared if you had a one left padded practice or if you 
had 16 padded practices versus having to pay <laughs> right. X amount of dollars. No, they don't give a crap about that. Like, gosh, I don't yeah. know. All right. I'll be fine. Um, but, I mean, in general, I just thought it would have been good for guys to have health insurance for the yeah, rest of their life. Definitely. Um, I wanted to hit on a couple of quick things here before we get to your film breakdowns and maybe another topic or two. Um, did you, uh, you probably didn't see this story because you've been, you test, you had your COVID test on Wednesday. You had the surgery yesterday. I'm, I'm certainly assuming that you tested negative for COVID, right? Would you have a rapid test? Yeah. 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 So did you see the story on some of the rules changes for 2021, including the NFL lessening the restrictions on jersey numbers by position. Now, um, running backs, wide receivers, and tight ends can wear number 1 through 49 in addition to 80 through 89. Now, you had 47, but now we can see wide receivers and tight ends and running backs as well with single-digit numbers. That did not exist before. Um, The... um, Linebackers can wear jersey number 1 through 59 and also 90 through 99. So linebackers used to have to be, I think, 40 through 59 and then 90 through 99. Now linebackers can be single-digit numbers. DBs also can be 1 through 49. Those are the significant changes. Um... So Tom Brady had a major problem with this, and he sent out a barrage of tweets after this. The first one was, good luck trying to block the right people now, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, going to make for a lot of bad football. Um, You know, and he attached the jersey number changes. Um, And uh, he said, why not just let the linemen wear whatever they want to? Why have numbers? Just have colored jerseys. Why not wear the same number? Dumb. Um, he's obviously referring to, I believe, just what quarterbacks have to do to call out, you know, Mike linebackers. 53 is the mic. 53 is the mic. I'm not really understanding, though, where there would be a lot of confusion as long as there is a consistent jersey number, no matter what it is, on the player. Tell me what I'm missing here. I think a lot of times when you start talking about picking up blitzes and picking up packages, you go into the week and you say, okay, who are the known rushers? Uh, And for the most part, the known rushers would be 90s numbers and then maybe like Shaq Barrett wears 58. You'd be like, oh yeah, anyone with a 90s number and 58 are known rushers. The offensive line will always have those guys. And then we're going to look at the linebackers and say, okay, now we have 52 is uh, the mic or consistently a backer, so we'll identify these couple backers as the back's responsibilities. It's just going to make it a little harder for quarterback to identify collectively all the known rushers on any down and distance. The funny thing is like the team like the Patriots, who play guys everywhere, love this rule. <laughs> it makes it so much easier for them to put guys all over the place. Playing the, it, it's yeah, just Buccaneers, it's yeah. a little harder for the offensive line initially to identify all non-rushers. And, and not that much harder. Now instead of saying all the 90s, you got to be like, okay, uh, 33, 56, uh, 74, 92 are known rushers <laughs> The offensive line will always have those guys. It's a little more work. 
it's not a big deal. It, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. It's not a big deal in college where they can wear any of these numbers. Um, so, the, the, well, there's a lot of free hitters and free runners in college too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Watching all these quarterbacks, there's a lot of free hits. Yeah, they don't, they don't get blocked up nearly uh, as often. Um, there were a couple of other things I wanted to get to here. I don't mind it though. I, I think it, it, it. I don't know. I think it's fine for receivers to wear number one in the NFL. The offensive side, I don't care. I think it's good on the offensive side. I think it's fine. Um, I mean, I think you know that's something we've all gotten used to watching every other level of football other than the NFL. The NFL's always had this, you know, kind of thing where you're never going to see a number four at running back. You're never going to see a number seven at wide receiver. You're never going to see a number nine at linebacker. I mean, Montez Sweat was number nine in college. Um, and the and actually, to me, it looks kind of cool. I always think single-digit jersey guys just look a lot faster. Um, a guy wearing number four looks a lot faster than a guy wearing 94. Um, it's ridiculous, but it just seems like it's always been true watching football. The, the punt returner that's back there wearing number one um, is it just, it just looks like he's more dangerous than the punt returner wearing number 47 or 46 or even 26. Um, but whatever. Um, I think it's fun. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. I'm fine with it. Um, a couple of other things that I wanted to mention to you before we get to your film breakdown and, and also another Dan Snyder and, um, and, and Alex Smith story. Um, Jason Wright, uh, put out a note, I guess on the team's website last night, um, you know, in follow-up to all of those surveys that they sent out to season ticket holders with all of the crazy names, you know, the Griffins and the Swifts and the Rubies and the Monarchs and all these different names. And it was typical of, you know, this. Um, It's like a pretty long letter um, with a lot of explaining. Um, But there was one thing um, that he, he, two things that he wrote that I wanted to read. He said, quote, as you might have seen, the potential names take many different directions. And reading what is appealing and appalling to the public is helpful in that regard. Using, the, using these surveys as the sole means of selecting our new name, brand, and identity, however, was never what we had in mind. Um, then he gets into what they had in mind. And basically it's like, you know. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying out a lot of different things, trying to get as much feedback as possible. And then he's got this line that's, uh, towards the end. He said, um, positive reactions to categories are very helpful to us as we debate which options to take forward. Allergic reactions to categories of names are also useful. And you certainly provided those comments like absurd and utter trash, though less helpful then more thoughtfully laid out perspectives can nonetheless be used to guide us forward. Hey, dude, get ready when you don't have a seven and nine playoff season as to the reactions on your social media to almost everything the organization does. Absurd and utter trash are benign comments to some that I'm sure you really got for some of those names. I just thought it was funny that he said, comments like absurd and utter trash, though less helpful 
than more thoughtfully laid out perspectives can nonetheless be used to guide us forward. That's that is a is that a compliment sandwich? <laughs> I love that in doing this though. That when I read through the list the other day, some of the team names you're like the Wild Hogs. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. I mean, they. I. You know what I like? I think they should become the icons. Or no, no, the Demon Cats. Those. That was the worst. Demon Cats. Who? Who? Let's propose this list of names, and let's throw in Demon Cats. Like they, they had a roundtable that they did this with. Everyone's I'm... like, okay, every, you throw out your best name, uh, Timmy. What do you think? I like Demon Cats. Ooh, that's fun. <laughs> you know, I part- I participated in something like six, four months ago. I can't remember exactly what it was. I don't know if it was a Julie thing or if it was a media thing. I don't think it was a Julie thing, actually. But I was on some Zoom call with, I think London Fletcher was on it. I think Smoot was on it. I think there was another media. I can't even remember at this point. I, I remember being like, God, I I just don't give a shit about this. And I remember, base, I think Doc was on it, too. And um, and maybe like some business person in the community or something that was a season ticket holder. I don't know if any of this that I did, I can't even remember the specifics, ended up leading to any of these. I just remember being the person on the call that said, look, I am lifelong um, wait, you know, from the womb. Um, it's it's it, it was unpleasant to lose the last name, especially um, you know, in the context that it was lost. But with that said, I am definitely not moved one way or the other by the selection of a new name as long as Washington is the lead part of the brand. Like I, I just want my city to be the lead part of the brand, which is why I don't mind FC Washington or Washington FC. But whatever. It, it, I'm telling you, Cooley. Do you know, do you know what I like? What? Because it's, since I went to all the reservations and did all the things, and again, everyone there told us, like, we don't want to be called the Native Americans. We don't want to be called the Indians. We, we just, we're natives. We want to be called the natives. We say they just changed it to Native. There's no way they're going to do anything that has any sort of link to Native American imagery or anything I else. know, but they did it a few years ago. Like, hindsight to it, you know, we, we both felt a certain way, but hindsight to it, you probably could have kept the imagery and just become the Native. Well, I think this is why, you know, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure I knew this to be fact, um, why Warriors was really the team and the owner's first choice if they were to ever lose the name. And I still think that that is very much in the running as long as they're able to do all the things they need to do, you know, all of the legal stuff, all the trademarking, all of the, you know, feasibility stuff, all that shit, you know, as long as they are able to do all that, um, I still think the Warriors has a, has a, a chance, although there is, there are going to be some people that say, just steer clear of anything that could, you know, be tied back to Native Americans. Uh, sure. I... What if you just let the Native Americans vote on what they wanted the name to be? <laughs> 
because as you know, it's a very fragmented world. Um, and every reservation, uh, all 500 of them or whatever number there are, but there are what between like 400 and 600, they're, they're their own entities. They, they are all, they all think differently. They all, um, you know, th- their, their, their cultures are very different. And- I understand what you're saying, but if you listen to the, I mean, seriously, they were the native people here. If you were to say natives, you just can't find a negative connotation for that. The natives. Yeah. That's what I wish it would be. Um, so one other thing I wanted to get from you before we take our first break, uh, because we didn't, you, you, I think the day that you did this week, um, it happened afterwards. Jordan Reed retired. He was essentially told by doctors, you have to retire. Um, because of all of the concussions. Your thoughts on Jordan Reed's career? I think as far as a career, he'll look back and know that he could have had statistically and impactfully much more of a career. I mean, you talk about a guy that at the height of his physical ability when he was 100% was almost uncoverable. He's a pretty special player in terms of being able to double stick and break guys off, put his foot in the ground, run vertically, run after the catch is really good. I think, you know, had he had those off seasons to really grow and and become a little bit better blocker, he probably would have became that as well. Um, I think that the retiring is the right decision. I think you and I talked about this two years ago. I don't know. You, you just, get that many concussions and I, I think you just call it you know like if my son has if he has two we're really going to wonder about it even at any point and then if he were to have three i'd say that's that's it buddy you know it's, you're more apt to be concussed than other people by the time you have two especially three concussions so i think special special player uh, fortunately made a boatload of money, so he should be okay in that situation. And I think Jordan was the guy that loved ball. He'll look back and wish he could have done, or wish it would have went a little bit differently. But it, it didn't go all bad for him. Just an incredible talent. One of the, you know, I, we, we did this on the show the, uh, the other day, one of the, the greatest what-ifs in Washington football history, and there are lots of them, trust me. He's not at the top of the list, but he's, you know, in that top five to top ten of what-ifs. If he had had health throughout his career and played 14, 15, 16 games a career, you know, a year for 10 to 12 years, uh, he would have obviously been the all-time tight end pass catcher in franchise history. He would, he would have passed you, right? Um, more like you, you agree with that, don't you? Yeah, I think he should have passed me, yeah. Yeah, um, and just... I think if I would have played 14, 15, 16 years, he wouldn't have passed me, though. So there's a what-if to that, you know? Yeah, that's true, but a different type of player than you were. Yeah, I, I think a little bit different type of player. I, I wouldn't call it like... A, there's certain things that he does that are just so quick twitch in terms of coming out of the top of his break, but I mean, not not like incredibly dissimilar. I, kind of, I was an H back there, and he became kind of the H back. Well, who was the best? Pe- I didn't make guys fall down coming out of breaks. Who was a better player? But, you, you or Jordan Reed? Who had more talent? Excuse me, you or Jordan Reed? We're, we're just completely, completely different players. Well, that's what I just said. 
as far as a route runner, Jordan had incredibly more, uh, like an incredible amount more talent than I did. He was, I think, one of the best route running tight ends that uh, that I've watched play the game. His ability to tempo things and come out of breaks at full speed and and like I just said, make guys fall down out of breaks, as Kyle Shannon would put it, shit their pants. He, he did that. He was awesome at that. Do you know where you are on the all-time receptions list, list for the franchise? No. Take a guess. Six. You're fifth. Fifth. Monk, Charlie Taylor, Santana Moss, Gary Clark, and then you are fifth. Do you know exactly how many receptions you had in your career? 420-something. 429. Um, Jordan Reed is 10th. He's got 329 catches, so he's 100 behind you. But he played half the number of games almost that you played. Actually, not half. Um, he played uh, he played 52 um, less games than you played in. And he had 100 less catches. Yeah. So he basically... No, I mean, it's, it's he amazing, basically, though, but the league's changed, even since I came in. Yeah. Like, I was watching this thing on Harold Carmichael yeah. the other day. And Harold Carmichael's highest year, most receptions in a year was 67. And he was sitting there saying, you know, there are fullbacks that have 67 receptions now, which is true. I mean, there, there are guys that like me or like Juice Check or some of the, even fullbacks that have that many receptions. It's just the, the difference as far as franchise re- leaders is there's also guys that play four years for one franchise and then sign a big deal with somebody else and they don't always stay. So the franchise leaders, I don't know how much will change. I mean, probably a little bit, but the total reception leaders is going to continue to change. Um, The other thing that Jordan Reed is the all time non running back because running backs always have a higher catch percentage, meaning receptions, you know, targets percentage of, of receptions to targets. Um, of mm-hmm. all the receivers and tight ends, he's got the highest catch percentage at 73.8%. And actually, um, uh, well, no, you're not second. Uh, Jamison Crowder is second. And then you. You had a 64.1%. No, Pierre had 649 my fault. You had a 64.1% catch percentage. Wh- what's a good, really good catch percentage again? Something over 60? I think anything over 60. And, and even now, it's, that's also going to change because of the rules. Yeah. You know, during my career, when the, the Patriot rule where you, you couldn't really hold anymore, that, that catch percentage is going to change as well. And, and, and the quick offense and the quick passing game and some of the stuff. Like, you, I mean, speaking of Harold Carmichael, he was like the first slip screen wide receiver screen guy. Because it was run after the catch. Like think of all those easy catches that a guy like Pierre would get, or, or even that I got some of those little screens. All the, those little deals. Those are easy receptions. Those the league changes offensively, from you know a lot more play action, shot down the field stuff, vertical stuff, to you know four or five yard catches in the open field. You're going to see catch percentages go up. I mean, quarterback completion percentages went up dramatically. It, it was unheard of 10 years ago unless you were Drew Brees to complete 70% of your passes. Now that's the standard. Um, those are the 
you know, first years of me remembering football and Harold Carmichael was, you know, basically a six foot eight inch wide receiver and Pat Fisher, Washington, you know, one of the greatest. Yeah. Court, one of the, five, five. Uh, he wasn't five, five, but I bet he was like five, eight or five, nine, something like that. And yet Pat Fisher covered Harold Carmichael and, you know, back in the day, uh, Carmichael was six, eight. So he was, he was basically, what was Fisher? I'm going to um, guess Fisher was 5'8". Five, 5'9". Okay, 5'9". So basically a, almost a foot taller. Um, and so back then, though, I mean, Pat Fisher was one of the most physical, competitive, um, you know, corners in the league. I mean, he was – Pat Fisher was a multi-time pro bowler in all pro at 5'9". He was a really good player um, during – He was an ass kicker. Oh my God! Did you did you ever have a chance to meet him? He's still alive, I'm pretty sure. Did, a ton, yeah. No, I've I've got a chance to talk to Pat a lot. Was he a serious dude as as an older guy? No, he's fun. I mean, okay. yes, he's a serious dude, but he's he's got a great sense of humor. He was. I mean, he was such a physical corner, and back then, you know, you could be physical right right at the line of scrimmage. So, you know, he he was that those matchups between Fisher and Carmichael were legendary. Now, the Eagles sucked pretty much for much of Carmichael's. Actually, that's not true. Towards the end of the 70s, the Eagles got good. But when Fisher was really at his highest level, I don't know when Fisher retired. I'm going to guess he retired in 76, 77, something like that. I need to pull that up. Um, uh, where's Pat Fisher? Um, 77. He retired in 77. And then when did Carmichael ret- retire? Because Carmichael was part of their the first Super Bowl team that Philadelphia went to in, in 1980. So I'm going to guess he played into the early 80s. That's my guess with Carmichael. 84. Okay, 84. Um, but when they were going toe-to-toe, Washington was just a much better team. The Eagles weren't a very good team. So, right. but but the, still, those matchups were legendary. In the NFC East, it was Pat Fisher and Mike Bass, and then later Joe Lavender and Lamar Parrish against Harold Carmichael for the Eagles, um, Drew Pearson, you know, for the Cowboys, and then Cowboys. and then Mel Gray um, for the Cardinals. The Giants in that era didn't really have. Um, it's funny during basically a decade until the very end of it. It was all Washington Dallas every year. You know, 71 Washington Dallas, 2, 3, 74, 75, 76, 77. And then the Eagles got good at the end of the decade, and then the Giants got good in the 80s. Um, but it was a, a, a basically that decade was primarily dominated in the division by Dallas and Washington. Now, Dallas won more division titles, but the two teams, you know, had the biggest games and the most important games every year. Um, all right. Uh, I do, before we get to your film breakdown, just want to mention real quickly what Alex Smith said in a story uh, in Sports Illustrated. Tommy and I talked about it briefly yesterday. And also Dan Snyder added again, filing another motion, um, this time with a serious accusation of, a, of the investment banker, John Moog, in Baltimore. We'll do that right after this word from one of our sponsors. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. 
Twice a week, J.J. Reddick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Two things, and then I want to get to Cooley's film breakdowns um, of the last two quarterbacks that he's going to do, Kyle Trask and Jamie Newman. Um, So, Cooley, you probably missed this. You were having surgery. But remember about a month and a half ago, the GQ story that Alex Smith did where he accused Washington of not wanting him and he felt, you know, sort of alone and, you know, they were surprised he came back and they didn't want him. And then, you know, he backtracked off that story a little bit. J.P. Finley reported in a story that one of his sources told him that Alex Smith thought a lot of the, the story was sort of taken out of context and the writer didn't really understand football, yada, yada, yada. Anyway. This story yesterday in SI, which Tommy and I um, touched on, um, included uh, in- included uh, Alex Smith um, accusing Washington's coaching staff of being patronizing to him. Um, he felt that the coaches were patronizing. They believed that, and they preferred a cute story, um, but the comeback he wanted it, you know, that they wanted it to end. His father says, his father, Doug, believes the team sabotaged his return. Um, and, you know, it goes on and on. Ron Rivera provided a statement. Uh, on behalf of the team, he said, you know, look, I was scared to death about putting Alex back out there. That's something I struggled with every day. It's unfortunate that he feels that we that we patronized him because I can tell you that was not our intention. At the end of the day, I commend Alex because he proved everyone wrong and exceeded any reasonable expectations that anyone had set for him. He not only made it back onto the field but led us to the playoffs. It was truly a remarkable feat. There was also a portion of this where um, Alex did admit that he told friends that he would not have complained if they had released him before last year or told him that he wasn't good enough or deemed him to be too much high risk, but that he was pissed off that nobody ever really you know, came to him with how they really felt. Um, he did not, was not happy when he was put on the physically unable to perform list. When they cleared him you know, at camp, um, they, you know, the, basically he didn't, he, he, he was critical of the tactics he said his coaches <clears throat> used to keep him sidelined. First, they placed him on the physically unable to perform list. Then um, the coaches asked him to carry extra weight, push sleds, and hurdle bags for, for drills, tasks he had never done in 15 pro seasons, let alone before his leg had to be uh, rebuilt. Smith, Smith believed the team wanted to see if it could break him. Um, and if that sounds paranoid, the team physician, Dr. Robin West, agreed. Um, and ultimately, he feels guilty because Dr. Robin West isn't with the team, and he wonders if he, if his relationship and some of the things he, has, he said about the team 
um, uh, were the reason why. Look, the net of it is this for me, and then I want you to your reaction. I've said this a million times. The team did not have to put him back out there. It was a massive risk to do it for this team more than any other team in the league. And I think that's the big part that Alex is missing. The context of this organization being for two years leading up to this criticized for the way they handled Trent Williams, whether it was right or wrong, Uh, an organization that was reeling in terms of public perception as it related to health-related situations and, and a lot of other situations. And Alex Smith just didn't get the fact that everybody, that watched Project 11 didn't think he would play again. They were absolutely justified in planning to move forward with, forward without him, were absolutely reasonable in their reaction that they were surprised that he was cleared to play, and were absolutely justified in being totally angst-ridden over putting him on the field. They didn't have to do it. It was actually in many ways a risk that was absolutely all risk, little reward, Um, The reward was for Alex to see his journey come to a conclusion by playing in an NFL game, capturing a Comeback Player of the Year award, if you even consider that to be significant. And certainly after the Rams game in which he played in, I said it the next day with you, or two days later, I, I would have released him at that point because they were so lucky to survive that day. Now, ultimately, it worked out for both of them. He got comeback player of the year. He didn't get more seriously injured. The team avoided what would have been an absolute damaging public relations and even more situation if he were to get seriously injured. And you know what? He played pretty well, too, and was a significant contributor in a season that ended up being in the playoffs. Personally, I think he should be grateful for what they did they, they took an unnecessary risk and a very high risk putting him out there. Um, and they should thank him for being a great leader and a mentor and playing well. And they should shake hands and say, wow, what an experience this year. I don't know why he is continuing to attack this team, including the head coach, who, by the way, all the while was going through cancer treatments. So... You know, the decisions that were being made by the head coach and by this organization, but by the head coach, were under a little bit of duress to begin with. Personally, I just, I don't take the the organization's side a lot, but I'm taking their side in this. This is an unnecessary criticism and now ongoing criticism of the football team. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know why this is happening. And why he continues to, you know, to, to, they, they were patronizing his father saying that they sabotaged, tried to sabotage his return. Hey, thank you very much. I'm incredibly grateful. I understand the massive risk you took by putting me back on the field, especially putting me back on the field after what happened in the Rams game. I really appreciate it. Hopefully I was able to provide something in return. Yes, you were, Alex. You were an incredible leader and an inspiration, but more importantly, you helped us win games and get to the playoffs. Thank you very much. By the way, a quick addition, because we didn't talk about this, Tommy and I, yesterday. The reason he hasn't been signed by anybody is the only way any team was going to sign him this year was with a disclaimer. 
he was essentially going to have to 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 commit to like conditions where if he was hurt seriously that the, the team was off the hook something this team never did with him now it would have been hard for them to do it cuz he was already under contract um and that would have had to been you know some sort of an amendment to exist his existing deal but i don't really get it with alex right now i i think that he misses the big point about what kind of position this organization was risk-wise. Risk-reward. It wasn't much of a risk-reward scenario. There was very little little reward putting him on the field and a shitload of risk. I don't get it at all, what he's doing. I would have I cut him and taken the cap hit or I would him as a first-time head coach and said, Look, even if he were the guy to give us a chance to win six games or seven games or whatever and make the playoffs, if we don't have that chance and we're drafting Trey Lance or Trevor Lawrence or any field, or like we're going to draft a quarterback with fifth overall if we keep losing games. That's not the worst-case scenario in that situation. I mean, Rivera even said, like, I was scared to death about putting Alex back out there. Don't put him out there. Yeah. Plus, you put him out there in a situation against because you were frustrated with the Wayne. I think was a big part of why he played in that Rams game. The, I mean that that to me was probably the largest reason why he played, and the patronizing was probably more like, well, you're the only guy that can go in right now, so I guess ooh, we're really nervous. But go on in. Like they didn't need to play him at all. I mean. It, it's not like they were re- they were getting Peyton Manning, a guy that, that, that of that caliber, even what he was in Denver. They were getting Alex, who was who a great leader, and all the things that you said. Maybe he's frustrated how that end-of-year meeting went. Maybe he thought they were going to sign him back or do something new with his contract, and they, he, he felt like he deserved the job here. No, he said, he, hard, he, he said in the story he knew he wasn't coming back. But it's hard thinking that you're done. I mean, and he knew how much work he put into all of that. And I know he believes he's healthy, but dude, set aside all the negative publicity if something happened and just put it on yourself if something happened. You said think of dealing with that every day. You said something that um, I said this morning, too, because it just sort of occurred to me as I was going through this and going back to that, you know, Rams game. Um, and it was after the Ravens game when they benched Dwayne when he was, you know, in there talking about his fantasy stats after they got their ass kicked by the Ravens. But statistically, he had a good game. Um, but still, the game was never in doubt. They got their ass completely annihilated, uh, 31-17. And, and remember, um, it, was the, it was a couple of days later, Ron Rivera said, uh, Kyle Allen is our starter. Alex is our backup, uh, and Dwayne is third string. And everybody was like, whoa, not only is Kyle Allen starting, uh, I mean, Dwayne's been demoted to third string. So it was... It was such, you know, it was such an indictment in the moment of Dwayne, you know, and to your point, uh, they didn't start Kyle, uh, they didn't start, you know, uh, Alex Smith, they started Kyle Allen and their expectation probably was we get Kyle for the final 12 games and we're giving Scott what he wants, a quarterback that can run the system and we're, we've just had it with Dwayne and we don't, we don't we, I mean, we, they should have cut Dwayne then too. 
they should have cut Dwayne and then cut Alex after the second half of the Rams game when he was brutalized for 30 minutes, and, and it's a miracle he survived that game. Uh, but, yes, they had to have been so frustrated with Dwayne at that at that moment. Um, also, remember this, and I, I reminded Tommy of this, after the Rams game in which Alex – was ravaged for 30 minutes, um, and they gained not one first down in on seven drives, and he had 37 yards passing and got six uh, sacked six times, including that first time by Aaron Donald when when Donald jumped on his back. Remember what Rivera said after the game. Kyle Allen was okay. He was cleared to come back, but we were concerned we didn't want Kyle to get hurt. Meantime, the quarterback that he was so anxious about playing – and had survived, you know, one drive after another where he was just being tossed around in the backfield. Uh, his life could have been in jeopardy, or his leg could have been. I just find that that whole thing interesting. But as it turns out, you know the other yeah, go it ahead. Is. You, you know what else is interesting about that? Dwayne was inactive. Oh yeah, he was inactive. They made him inactive. He was inactive the rest of the year until the until the four until uh, well no until Kyle got hurt. When Kyle got hurt against the Cowboys, the Giants got hurt against the Giants. That's when Dwayne became Alex's backup, and they signed Heineke at some point along the way. And, and then, if you look down the line, it wasn't like they pulled Heineke out of left field like they did. They randomly had a quarterback workout. They knew they liked Heineke. When they didn't like Dwayne, they could have went and signed Heineke, or they could have put Allen wherever. Or excuse me. Alex, wherever on the pop or inactive for the year, whatever it was, and and signed Heineke way before. He's been on their roster in Carolina. Yeah, I, I just don't they stuck with Alex Smith as the last resort. They did not have to do that, and so for him to think that they were patronizing him, they didn't have to have him at, on the roster at all. No, they probably they probably shouldn't. Look, it did end up working out for both parties Mir- miraculously. Really, that's the thing. Why I don't. See why everyone's so frustrated. I, uh, or, or Alex is, and I, I hear where you, you you feel the same way. He shouldn't be frustrated. He got a chance. He proved everyone wrong. He was it, it, the story's incredible. But you're still the 25th best quarterback in the league. I, I mean, I do, I do Which sort of. Impressive. I get his point. Yeah, I mean. That's the other thing. He he just wasn't ever very good for for Washington. He just wasn't that good. He was. I think his two best games were the were the second half against Detroit and the second half against Pittsburgh. They were better than any game he played in twenty eighteen. Um, I agree. The um, uh, I forget what I was going to say. Oh, whatever. I mean, the bottom line is is that you know after the GQ story. It seemed that maybe he, you know, wanted to make the point that it was taken out of context. Well, he doubled down uh, in the SI story. And I I, I don't – I just think that this organization gets battered around, you know, um, for for the right reasons a lot of the time. But in this particular case, if you were like all of us – following the day-to-day detail, you know, conversations, and really understood the franchises, you know, basically, you know, in backpedaling mode after the Trent Williams situation. This was really, I remember saying it once they talked about potentially him being cleared. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, not this team. Move him. 
Cut him. Let him go back out onto the field for somebody else, not this team. You don't need that. You've got a new organization, a new staff. You're not winning the Super Bowl this year. He's not your long-term answer. And the only thing that can come of it is something terrible. You know, and you don't want to be the team that that put him back out on Rivera said that. I didn't want to be the guy to put him back out there and have him get injured. But it was more than that, Ron. It was this organization putting him back out there. And they didn't have to do it. They shouldn't have done it. It worked out that they did for him and the team. And that's why everybody should just, you know, be incredibly thankful of, of each other. You know, recognition of what the team did and the risk that they took with very little chance going into it of a high reward. And him, you know, uh, performing and, and, and doing a pretty decent job and helping them win some games and get to the postseason in a year in which the division sucked. The other story, real quickly, um, Snyder continues to, you know, he's got the big lawsuit against the the Indian company that put out the stories, the fake stories about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, You know, last week it was him going after Bruce Allen, which you never did weigh in on. This week it's another... um, it's another court filing. This time, him, uh, Snyder is accusing John Moog, the Baltimore investment banker who represented Fred Smith, Dwight Shar, and Bob Rothman in the sale of their shares back to Snyder. Um, he's accusing um, uh, Moog of deliberately destroying incriminating evidence um, in the hunt for the sources of the July last July articles that that tied him to, you know, sex trafficking and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. So, you know, basically they're saying um, in their filing that Mr. Moog was ordered by the court to basically turn over all of this stuff. And he instead deliberately and knowingly destroyed crucial documents um, injure, you know, injuring Snyder's ability to prosecute in his defamation suit against the company in India. Now, a couple of things here. Tommy mentioned this yesterday. I don't know who gives this person advice, um, and I'm sure he doesn't listen to it anyway. Um, but this is one of those situations where is the juice worth the squeeze every single time? We're now into a weekly story about Snyder filing some sort of discovery motion, which brings up every single time Dan Snyder and Jeffrey Epstein's name in the same sentence. (laughs) Every single time. I mean, think about it. You know, the bottom line on this is for people that weren't paying attention to any of this last summer, and most people don't, you know, aren't, you know, in tune with what internet rumors were out there last summer, but all they keep hearing in story after story is, ooh, Snyder and Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, he just keeps reminding people of this thing. Secondly, where is this headed? Like, if he does win this defamation suit against this company in India, and let's just say John Moog did something where he, you know, criminally, you know, um, uh, destroyed evidence or destroyed, you know, uh, knowingly um destroyed something that a, that a, that, that a, a court told him that he couldn't destroy. Uh, and they've got proof of that, which they could. Like they could have emails from the other end, whoever he sent these emails to, could have copies of these emails. But where is it headed for him? 
I actually thought briefly about this story after I read it last night, and I wonder if he is trying to clear his name so that the league feels more comfortable with all of these rumors. I don't know what's going on here. What's the end game here? Do you have any? I don't know what the I don't know what the end game is. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what the juice actually would be. I know the squeeze is a brutally tough squeeze. I think the NFL is pretty qualified, and I'm sure 31 other billionaires are pretty qualified to actually clear his name within that organization or find enough details that they don't need a legal filing for this. I don't know what he's if he's going to get any end result that he really wants. I can't imagine that calls or texts between Moog and Allen will ever be uncovered. Um, it's hard to just, it'd be hard for him to subpoena Bruce anyways in that in, in instance. Um, look, he has every right to defend himself. Yes, he does. And I don't want to say that he doesn't have every single right to defend himself, but to your point, is what's he what's he going to end up gaining out of this? You know, he fought these other owners for a year on all of these things when he could have just did the deal a year ago that he did recently. Um, so it's it seems like a lot to do and a lot of continued news. And and I do hear you that the names are both together, but, you know, the more you see someone attacking it, that it's false. I think the more you tend to believe this isn't a, there was nothing there. And I, I would believe that there was nothing there. So someone set something up. But what, where are you getting? How, or how are you going to get that? You know, what's your justice here? You going to get justice out of this? I, I mean, maybe. Well, he's, maybe not. he's probably pissed and he wants some sort of revenge. But, you know, here's the thing that, and I think Tommy and I talked about this yesterday. If Dwight Schar and Jessica McLuhan and Bruce Allen and Mary Beth um, Evans or whatever her name is, I'm forgetting what her name is, the, the, the other woman that was Dan's administrative assistant for many years, and John Moog and all these people were trying to create fake stories to demean him and somehow force a sale because the owners would be like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, do you think that the owners wouldn't check to see if this was real or not? Like, I don't That's get... what I'm saying is there's 31 dudes that, that have the means to figure out if it's real or not. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the whole point of, you know, they, 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 they were trying to set up a situation that would force him to sell so that they could sell their shares with his at a much higher valuation um, because the majority owner would be involved in the sale, et cetera. Did anybody really think, like, did Dwight Shar or any of the people involved really think, oh, you know, we can use this company to disseminate fake stories um, about uh, Jeffrey Epstein and sex trafficking and drug parties, and the legal just buy it and force him to sell the team? It's absurd. It's absurd. And again, I'm repeating this ad nauseum, I realize, but the irony of the whole thing, again, is that that story... And all those stories that came out before the actual post story came out later that week actually made the post story seem less than what it was. It actually benefited Snyder in the moment, all of the, the crazy rumors. 
But whatever. I don't know where this is going. I asked Neil in Rockville, our, our good friend Neil in Rockville, who is a you know an esteemed Montgomery County um, lawyer. Um, I asked him this morning, I said, where is this going? He, said, he goes, I don't know. He said, part of me thinks that maybe the sale to um, Snyder of the 40% just cleared the way to make uh, a total sale the team that much easier. I, I think there's some truth to that, but bottom line is you had three minority owners that wanted to sell. So it's not like, you know, Dan and his 60% with his sister and mother and the 40% owned by Shar Rothman and Smith, like there was going to be a disagreement on selling. Every The other three wanted to sell. It wouldn't have been hard to sell 100% of it. You didn't have to convince anybody else. Um, there's this thought that him buying back those other shares makes it easier and cleaner for him to go ahead and go go ahead and sell the team now. I I asked Neil. I go, what what percentage chance now do you give of Snyder selling selling the team? He said twenty percent, and I just thought that's too high. I I think he's dug his heels in. I think what we saw recently was an indication that he's here for the duration, like the long duration. You know, along with his son eventually owning the team at some point. But then again, right, and maybe the maybe this is like the definitive. I will clear my name of all of this, so there is no chance anyone can take this from me. So I can then give it to my son Jerry. Maybe I don't know. Um, I think sometimes the, what, what what we've seen with him, whether it was you know suing the old lady that there was the season ticket holder, the city paper, all of these mo- ridiculous litigious. Um, crusades that he's been on that's brought nothing but horrible public relations attention to him and has gone nowhere. Um, this just, I think sometimes, you, you know I'm more than I do, um, much more obviously, I don't know him at all, um, but I think sometimes people just get pissed and they lose sensibilities on things like this and they just want revenge. It's a principle thing. Well, it never works out and has never worked out for him ever before. When it's a principal thing or a pissed off thing or a vengeance thing, it's never worked out for him. And this one to me seems like it's headed towards, I, I understand these things aren't true and somebody tried to smear your name, but you know, the, the, let's, let's not distort what his name is. His name's mud to begin with. There's not much damage you can do to this person's reputation. It's actually a very interesting question that I asked this guy, Daniel Ka- Kaplan, from The Athletic last week, and I asked, I've asked Neil and others, like, if, you know, this group is found guilty of defamation of character, what will a judge taking into consideration his existing reputation really deem the damages to be? I mean, wh- how much more could his reputation be damaged? I understand Jeffrey Epstein's one of the more you know more horrible people of the last ten years, and being associated with Jeffrey Epstein inaccurately and untruthfully is not good. But Snyder doesn't have a re- a good reputation. He's got a reputation that's in the gutter to begin with. So I don't know what kind of damages he would get out of this. And really, who cares from his standpoint? It's not like he needs it. He just wants to win the case and, I guess, clear his name on this. But I think most people already know that it was bullshit, that all those stories were bullshit. Anyway, uh, Cooley's film breakdown of two probably second- and third-round quarterbacks in Kyle Trask and Jamie Newman right after this word from one of our sponsors. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Cooley's got two more quarterbacks to do, and then we'll get to a lot of the other players that potentially could be there at 19, or if Washington traded up maybe a few spots for a linebacker, we'll get to all of those players next week. He's going to do Kyle Trask and Jamie Newman today. I'm a Kyle Trask fan. I think he, to me, has looked like a pro quarterback. Am I right or wrong? There there are times that I think he would be right. There are times I think he could be wrong. So let's talk about Trask. First of all, I think Florida did a really good job with offensive design, with game planning week in and week out, knowing how to beat coverage that they were trying to attack. They had two of the most versatile weapons in college football, in Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Toney. The backs are good, especially as a receiver. Uh, And they got open receivers and open tight ends and open looks a lot. Dan, well, more, Dan Mullen's every, great, almost, Cooley. Dan Mullen is a great offensive mind. Oh, yeah. If you want to run college football and, and run an offense, watch watch Florida. Yeah. If you want to run a high school offense, watch Florida. Their design is, is really good to get guys open a lot of the time. So the positive with Trask. <laughs> One, he can throw some, some dime balls. And, and I noted it. It seems like every ball to Pitts is a dime. <laughs> it just catches everything, man. I mean, and Kadarius Tony is also pretty incredible. Uh, they they have a lot of open number ones and number one looks. He does a really good job initially holding his eyes off of number one to throw number one. I, but in instances where I see that, I, I just think he's been coached to look this way. You're not really necessarily looking at anything in particular. You're just holding somebody to go back to number one. I see that commonly with all of these guys I've been watching. As far as feet in the pocket, I think his feet are pretty good in the pocket. I think he's a statue back there at times. He's not overly athletic. Right. But in terms of base and feet, I think his feet are okay. Maybe a little bit slow. Uh, he can make adjusted arm angle throws, but it's not natural. And when he does adjust arm angle throws, it's not with great velocity. I do think he has the ability to drift and feel pressure. The problem is, is again, he's just not that good off-platform with arm velocity. He will drift. He does understand where pressure's coming from, though. Uh, I think really good touch, especially when wide receivers are open. He can make progression throws, and Florida did a lot of this when they weren't just going number one, just drawn up. He, he can go across the board from left to right. and So it's not necessarily working one side of the field to the other. It's one, two, three, four, five. 
and you see Trask be able to find the open receiver fairly quickly. He's a big, strong dude. He's tough to bring down. I like that. He will step up in the pocket, and he does make good, subtle movements to reset himself in the pocket, back again to his feet. I think his base is pretty good. Subtle movements in the pocket are, are, are good. Ball's usually out in decent timing. Um, doesn't hurt that there's a lot of design to open number ones. But there are times when ball's not out in timing and it becomes a problem. And I actually noted this. There was a huge blow-up shot on Pitts against Georgia where he was out of the game the rest of the game. I'm sure the DB got ejected. He's thrown a post into the middle of the field, the, the tight end Pitts, and it's so late. Why can't they eject the quarterback for this? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm not coming on. Well, you, you can't, you can't it, eject it, it, a quarterback it, for a bad throw? Can you eject a left tackle for missing whiffing on an outside linebacker that spears the quarterback and puts him out of the game? <laughs> well, he had the choice whether or not to spear the quarterback potentially. Okay. Sometimes that DB trying to go pick a ball or run into a spot doesn't always have the adjustment. The negatives that I see in Pitts. Uh, there's a lot of times that he'll predetermine, especially when he's going to Pitts, and he'll miss other open dudes. The big negative, I think he shits the bed to pressure. And it's like you can't just, you can't just throw up a wounded duck for skeet shooting practice. Like you got a poor protected play. You've got something going on in the backfield. He cannot just drift back and let one go, and he does this a lot, and it's a problem. A lot of the picks resulted in just eat it plays, go make a play, run around, create. He is not a creator. He gets pressure in the pocket, and this just throw it up thing scares the shit out of me. His accuracy, I think, is good. It's not great. His arm strength is wanting, and I know he had a good pro day and showed arm strength, but I don't see dynamic arm strength, arm talent as people put it. At times, he even throws like a slider, especially going from right across the field to the left. You see a ball dive on him at times. Um, we mentioned the throw it up into pressure. There's some shaking my head throws. Like, what are you seeing, bro? Like, I'm questioning what you're seeing with some of these things. Um, one of those picks against Texas A&M, it ends up being called back. And it's crazy, like, how many of these picks I've been watching over the, the, this year of quarterbacks that get called back to some random thing. And he's drifting back, pressure. He throws a 500 ball into the middle of the field to a receiver who's triple covered. And it, it's like maybe he thought he was going to get it over the top, but doesn't have the arm, especially drifting back, to get it over the top. And the DB just stands under it and picks it. He's not getting hit. He's just drifting, throwing. Um, in that, I question, question like big picture vision, like entire field vision. Um, I'm not sure. And I, I wrote this. I, like he, he has this tendency to make a bad play a worse play or to make a full shit sandwich out of a little pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, Go find something, go make something happen, check it down, throw it out of bounds, throw it at someone's feet. Don't make a bad play a worse play. And, and I get that you're trusting receivers to go bat balls down or make plays, but some of those throw-up plays scare me. Um, overall, I, I like Pitts. Trask. I think that, Trask. Or, sorry, Trask. I love, overall, I love Pitts. I love Kadarius yeah. Tony. I, I like Trask. I, I think that he's got a little bit of growing to do. I don't know if the true 
high-level arm talent, high-level level athleticism is, is quite there. I think he's probably a backup as he progresses in the league. Don't you think he... For me, I still, I still think he's better. I, if I were to bet on who's taken sixth, right, who's the, the best of the rest, we did Davis Mills and we did... Um, Mond. And we did Mond and we did... Yeah, Davis Mills and Mond. Trask, Trask will probably be go, go before Mills or Mond. You do think that because that's not how it's being mocked. I think that there's a chance. I don't know where it goes. I don't see any of them being a second-round pick. I'd be surprised if any of those three went in the second round. Don't you think he throws with great touch, though? Remember we were talking about that the other day. Like, he just has – like, he, I bet he plays played other sports. I do think that he has some touch on the football. I think that's – and I listed that as one of the positive aspects is that, that he does throw with touch. And he'll throw a touch into – like one-on-one type of routes where he, he kind of back shoulders it or lets his guy go and get it. I, I think if it if I saw more of a true ability to drive the ball vertically into the middle of the field, I'd be really impressed with the fact that he threw a touch. But I think throwing with touch is where it ends with his arm talent. Okay. Um, you said that you think he totally shits the bed when he is under pressure. I, I just can, re- can shit the bed under pressure. I said he can move in the pocket, but. His big mistake throws happen to be under pressure, but making a bad play a worse play. He never struck me as a guy that was afraid to take a big shot. And it's not that I see that. I, I just see a guy that doesn't want to take a sack. And sometimes a sack's okay. He's a big, strong dude. He is. He's tough to bring down. He is. He's a big dude. He's slow. He is slow, but, you know, they, you know, just out of that offense, there's enough, you know, QB draw and and zone read where you know it's not like he's Brady. No, I think he ran a four nine eight at his pro day. That's not terrible for a quarterback. No, anything under five flats not terrible. Yeah. All right. Um, so overall, you do have him ahead of Mond and Mills, but you don't. I mean, you basically said Mond and Mills were fourth-round guys, but you understood that they may go before the fourth round. Is that – Trask – That's if, how I feel. That's how, completely how I feel based on watching film of these guys. And Obviously, things can change when you start talking to them. Sure. Having them into your building, some of the different intangibles that you're going to get to know. Like, I've never talked to Kyle Trask. I don't know who he's this dude. I don't know how smart he is. Davis Mills seems like he's really, really smart when you watch him talk on YouTube or talk on, about breaking things down. And it's just, I, I haven't seen enough David Mills or Davis Mills. And I saw enough bad with Davis Mills, especially in 2019 that you're like, I, it hasn't shown me enough that I think he's going to be a uh, higher ceiling. Right. Could be for sure. But in terms of watching game tape on these guys, there's enough questions with all three of them. All right. Uh, let's do Jamie Newman right after this word from one of our sponsors. Jamie Newman opted out of last season after transferring to Georgia. It's a shame. I would have loved to have seen him quarterback Georgia's team. They had a great defense. They had quarterback issues much of the year. Um, What did you see in Jamie Newman, a 6'4", 230-pound quarterback that's really mobile um, from his Wake Forest tape because you didn't get to see his SEC tape? I really am concerned with with why he didn't play at Georgia. 
not, and not in general for drafting him or not drafting him, but just his decision process. Well, his like, concern was over the, the pandemic. And I know, play, but, yeah. but he, he, you were able to opt out for a year. He could go back and play at Georgia this next season, could he not? Yes. He should. Okay. He should. So, the positives with Jamie Newman. He can throw the ball down the field, and he can throw the ball with touch down the field. Like, he's got arm strength. I like that about him. And then some of the touch and the ball placement downfield is good. I think he's efficient in terms of reading across the board. Uh, he can drive the ball into tight window stuff. He's got no fear, and that I love about him. In, in, in his first instinct, even as a runner, isn't to run. His first instinct is to hang in the pocket. So I like that about him a lot, too. Like He's one of those guys that you can do anything that you want with. Like You can run quarterback power, and you see him break quarterback power for 60 yards at times. I don't know if he's got true top-end breakaway speed. What was his, what like, was his 40 there was a, I don't know what his 40 was. I didn't look that up. But like, you, you know, there's a third and one that they run in the quarterback power against Boston College, and he takes it for 60, but he gets hawked down. And you can tell he's going to get hawked down the entire time. Still, you're talking about a quarterback running for 60 yards, so shut up, Chris. Um. But you'll be able to design an offense with a lot of quarterback-implemented runs, and your first and second down development would be really easy with some of the things that you would do if you had him in there because of your ability to involve 11 on the defensive side of the board. Uh, the negatives with Newman, his feet are absolute shit. They're shit. Uh, he's a, all over it. With, with feet, you know, they get tight together, they get wide apart. He's constantly drifting on his drops one way or another. He's constantly stepping up and moving right to left when he steps up. So he takes a lot of shots in the pocket that he doesn't need to throw or that he doesn't need to take. Uh, he's over hitching, almost hopping around back there. So he's late on a lot of his throws. And th- these are some like quick game throws where it's like most of the time, the way I've seen quarterbacks coach and gun is when you catch the ball, you're going to take your right foot back for right hand as pander, not hitch at all, rock and throw. Can't do that. Like, he's got to jump, pop around a little bit. His feet need a ton of work. I think that you can work on them. But, you know, that's a big concern. In that concern, though, there is some accuracy to him kind of bouncing around that I think if he's got his feet under control a little bit, that would help. Uh, decision-making is questionable. He's late on a lot of throws. Um, some can be ugly. His consistency as a passer is not absolutely there. Um, High-low read stuff, I'd like to see be much much more processed. He's got to see it to be open. Again, look, look. He, I don't know if he gets drafted. I mean, maybe day three guy, like sixth, seventh, best case fifth. He needed another year to develop as a quarterback. And that Wake offense is not – I'd like to see him in an offense like Florida or I'd like to see him in an offense with some more talent where he's got guys defining open more often. I'd like to see him be able to go with play action where he's not holding it in the back's gut for two and a half seconds. <laughs> right. Like, I, don't, I, I can't stand watching Wake Forest play, but I just see somewhat of a mess back there in terms of his ability to stay on his feet, stay balanced, and manage the pocket. It's not that he won't stay in the pocket. I just think it's a bit of a mess back in the pocket. I don't love Newman at all. A day, a day three pick, Jamie Newman. Yeah, he's if he goes anywhere before the 
mid fifth, I'd be blown away. All right. Um, we did. You did all the quarterbacks. I mean, the there's no doubt in your mind that the first five should be the first five, and your order would be. And it's going to be fascinating to see where they fall with what's going to happen. Like I was reading something today where I saw the the Jets will trade number two for Russell Wilson to Seattle, and then where where does Seattle do it too? Like the more and more I'm watching this, the more I'm like. Does San Francisco love Fields? Does San Francisco love Lance? Or does San Francisco love Mac Jones? Or does San Francisco know something that nobody else knows? Because they know the Jets. And maybe the Jets would take Lance. And San Francisco moved all the way up there to get the kid from BYU. And that's the dude they love. And they actually have enough insight to know they're going to get Zach Wilson. I, I, I Personally, I think right now if I graded them out, it's Wilson 1, Lawrence 2, Jones three, but Jones is kind of maybe not as high of a ceiling guy, like Daniel Jones kind of guy. Uh, Lance four, for me, field five. Yeah. And then everybody else you wouldn't take before, before the Trask, fourth round. Mond, Trask, Mills, Mond, Newman. Whatever. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, there are other guys you didn't do. A lot of people, you know, a lot of the Notre Dame people really thinking in books a Game winner. Over. Um, and you know, uh, the kid from Northwestern, man, uh, Peyton Ramsey, you know, some people mm-hmm. like, and then Felipe Franks, I think personally stinks. Um, you know, the, he got replaced by Trask, um, at, uh, at Florida. And then there's a linger from Texas who is really j- so much more of just a runner. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, um, book would be the guy we'll see where they fall. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I have no idea what's going to happen. I would be very surprised that the, if the Jets, after trading Darnold, decide to make a trade. Look, Russell Wilson's a known, and you know Zach Wilson isn't a known. And we already we've done the exercise. You know, it's twenty five percent, basically twenty six percent hit rate on first round quarterbacks over the last you know fifteen years or whatever. Um, I don't know, man. Would you would you trade number two overall for Russell Wilson at this point? What is he? Thirty three, thirty two. Is he that old? Um, His first year was twenty twelve. Thirty two. So thirty. He turns thirty three next year. Yeah, it's crazy because well, the thing is, is with the new staff, and you believe you're going to be good on defense, right? Russell Wilson right now takes all rebuild out of the equation. I think I would. I think I think just the known versus. I mean, there's a very good chance that you know any of these guys could be complete busts. The, the quarterback thing. This is why I'm happy about Fitzpatrick. I know I've got a professional quarterback next year for the team next year. He's a professional quarterback. He's been doing this forever. He knows what he's doing. The thing that's crazy with Seattle is why do they keep entertaining this Russell Wilson thing? Because what what are we missing here? What do uh, they not like? Uh, the, he doesn't like them. Well, there's something there. I mean, if Seattle loved loved Zach Wilson and Pete Carroll loved Wilson or loved one of these guys, then maybe. I mean, does someone – or here's the other crazy thing. Let's just say the Jets have this idea that Fields is the dude. 
Like there's if he, they're they're Wilson Fields or Wilson and then Fields and Lance. They're different kinds of quarterbacks. Like maybe they like Fields or Lance, and that's the direction they want to go with their offense. And it's and Wilson goes to three. I just I love Wilson, but for some reason I'm not. Hitting me that he could go to San Francisco. Like maybe San Francisco knew they could get him at three. That's why they moved up. Or maybe they just look. If they moving up to number three means there had to be, you know, you knew Trevor Lawrence was going one and no worse than two. So there had to be, um, basically, you know, three guys minimum that you really liked. I I think and I, I my only disagreement with you on everything you, you've said I, I like I think Trask is a little bit better than you think he is but that's fine I think Mon's actually a little bit worse than you think he is but I think you eventually came around to sort of where I was on him or close enough I just don't think feel I like Fields more than you do I don't oh, that's it's, fine it's not that I love Fields but. It would not surprise me if San Francisco took Fields. It wouldn't surprise me at all. And the thing about Fields that I really like is just the the stuff that I've heard about his character, his leadership, his work ethic, all of the all the things that we didn't know about Dwayne. And Fields is much better than Dwayne to begin with. Like, you know, we we didn't like Dwayne coming out of Ohio State. I ended up liking or being more intrigued by him. But I, I like Fields as a player. I don't love him. I like Lawrence more. I probably like Zach Wilson maybe equal. Um, Trey Lance, I have no idea what to think. By the way, there was a funny line. I, I forget if I told you this the other day or told Tommy this. Um, Dominique Foxworth on ESPN and talking about Trey Lance said, you know, it sort of hit me when I was watching some film and hi- or highlights of Lance, and he threw a touchdown to a guy who ran into an end zone that said penguins on it. <laughs> I, thought, yeah. I thought that was kind of funny, and it just sort of hit me like, what do we really know about Trey Lance? Um, Fields has played a lot. I think Fields would be a good QB keeper, bootleg, play action that's not surpri- that's not going to be surprising to me at all if fields goes 3 it, it, i i would be surprised if that's who san francisco takes yeah i know you would i mean you think you think he's sliding i to... don't think that he's not deserving to go 3 or that, that someone else might not take him there i just don't think san francisco will that's right. all right all right um busy week next week right. with cooley we will do you know as many players as we can and as many projections and uh, as we build up to Thursday night, um, we will know a week from today what happened in the first round. I mean, more and more, you know, I, I, I think that there, I think where there's smoke, there's fire. There are too many reports about Washington being interested in moving up for the guy that they might want. I personally think if Fields slips like you say he might, I think that's the guy they would go up and get. Um, Especially after the comments from Marty Herney, uh, from Martin Mayhew, that in evaluating quarterbacks, they like guys who have played a lot versus guys who haven't played a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Fields has played a lot. Lance hasn't played that much. Jones really hasn't played that much, um, relatively speaking. So I think it would be Fields if they were to move up into the first round. Um, anyway, uh, 
By the way, just one quick um, thing, you know, um, uh, skins related. They um, they have until May 3rd to pick up the fifth-year option on Deron Payne. That's an absolute lock. Somebody sent me a note and said, are you hearing that they're not going to pick it up on Deron Payne? I go, no, I didn't hear that from anybody, and I would bet you uh, $10,000 that they pick up the option on Payne's fifth year. He's a great player who has the chance to become even better. I would also throw out, I personally think John Allen's going to be signed to an extension before the season starts. I'd I be I'd, I'd be surprised if that doesn't happen. All right, uh, good job. Get some sleep. Really appreciate you doing this. I'm glad the surgery went well. See you, buddy.